Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing the rest of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. But as ever, we bring you the best of the show right here on the Red Box Podcast. Today, honestly, by-elections are like buses. You wait ages for one, and then three come along at once. There's three by-elections taking place in a fortnight. We're on the ground in Uxbridge, Selby, and Somerton and Froome to get a sense of what's really going on and can Rishi Sunak hang on to any of them. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at the news with the colourists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen Rana. Hello. And this week's Matthew is... He's back. It's Matthew... Bell. Morning, Matthew. Hooray. Hello, hello. Good morning. Um, can I start with both of you? D- did either of you know what the word oracy meant before this morning? <laughs> no. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, no. Matthew, you're a well-educated, posh young man. Well, it does rhyme with policy, sort of. So you can see whether uh, wh- wh- how they came up with it. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a brilliant new word. Um, and it's a brilliant idea to, to talk about oracy because it just distracts from everything else. It's a whole new <laughs> dimension of politics we haven't even thought of. Uh, so it's, it's, it's genius. Well, in fact, so Keir Starmer is making his big speech today. It's, the, it's his fifth and final mission. I know we've been ticking them all off on our wall charts at home. Uh, here he is speaking literally in the last couple of minutes about improving social mobility. This speech should demonstrate two things. One, that Labour has a plan to tear down the barriers to opportunity that hold this country and its people back. Two that I see this mission as our core purpose and my personal cause. To fight at every stage for every child the pernicious idea that background equals destiny. So, Marvin, on the, on the, uh, the content uh, rather than the, the, the word oracy specifically, <laughs> is, he, is Keir Starmer right, do you think, to stake out uh, this pitch on you know, social mobility, smashing what they call the class ceiling 
this idea, and he's used and he's made, said it many times before, his father was a tool maker and people used to look down on him for that. Is it possible for government policy to shift social attitudes like that? Uh, I think I think class ceiling is certainly catchier than oracy, and I think that that's the bit that will probably last. Um, I think it's quite clever politically because you know it's not something that's going to necessarily cost them a lot more money. It's just sort of rethinking the way they they look at education. But I think it's clever because it taps into a fear that a lot of people across the country will have. You know, people who are in jobs who are quite successful will always feel like there's something slightly holding them back. Um, that, you know, perhaps if they were just a little bit more confident, maybe, you know, they, they do better. And I think, I think he's clever for, for realizing that a lot of people will empathize with that and will think that any solution to that is probably a good thing. And, and, you know, I, I mean, Oracy, it, it is odd that we don't, we don't teach, um, you know, sort of speaking skills and fluency because it really, it really does transform your life chances. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you can present yourself confidently at work, you know, you, you are, your, your chances are just so much uh, more different. You can be incredibly bright, but if you don't know how to get your ideas across, if you don't know how to present them well, you will never be as successful as you probably should be. Um, so, you know, I think he's, it, it's quite a simple idea, but I can see why it would be effective. Um, and, you know, if you go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, this was always a core part of, um, you know, a person's education uh, that, you know, in order to be a, a, a proper adult, you know, you had to be able to do effective public speaking. You had to be able to know how to form an argument. And I think all of that has sort of it's, you know, it's been forgotten off the curriculum for an awful long time. And I think a lot of people will hear it and think that sounds quite empowering. Yeah. And, and, and why not? Just to, um, while you were just uh, talking there, Mavin, there appears to be some sort of protest at Keir Starmer's speech. We, we could hear, um, so he's making this speech in Gillingham in Kent. Far too many in this country where the only jobs on offer are low paid and insecure. And insecurity is the enemy of opportunity. It places barriers. Not just, e- want, not just economic barriers. Pledge reinstate your pledge for 28 billion per year. I did my, I, on the mission on uh, green power, we did that last month. We've so done that one. Will you just... We are on the side of economic growth. Will you just we let me please get on right with this? Now. Thank you very much. Stop making a man holding a banner saying green deal now, no more to, U-turns. Will you just let me finish this and I'll come and talk to you about it. Thank you very much. Look, we need a green new look, deal right now. Look, and you keep making my last speech was about this. Will you please? There's lots of people who want to hear this. Please don't drown them out. Please don't drown them out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And then they're being gently escorted off the stage. Oh, they're still shouting. Right now. So the thing that they're talking about is the £28 billion a year of investment in uh, in tackling climate change, the Ed Miliband policy. Keir Starmer sort of watered that down uh, when he made his environment speech uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Matthew, um, I suppose there's a risk. If you if you say you want to encourage young people to have the confidence to stand up and address a room full of people, um, it's a bit they unfortunate when they choose the middle of your speech to give it a go. <laughs> Most inconvenient. Um, but it's a shame that they interrupted him because this is the first thing Keir Starmer's ever said that I'm interested in and that has actually stuck in my head. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I can't remember any of the first four so-called policies. It's the first one that actually makes sense. And what's so clever about it is it's, of course, one of those things that's much easier to say. It's an ambition to, to strive towards, but it's much harder to implement it and to get tangible results. Because, of course, we want everyone to speak proper, but uh, it's very, very difficult to teach uh, oracy in schools unless you do it. You know, you've got to throw a lot of money at it. You've got to uh, get people into well debating is a good way i think to get things going i think that's what a lot of private schools have over state schools which is that they have these debating classes which you know and and that's why you see so many public school educated people end up being barristers and uh then politicians and prime ministers like tony blair is a very good example of that they can they're very confident when they speak and of course that means they're going to bulldoze their opponents um in in the chamber and and win an argument and so of course oracy is incredibly important um, in not just in politics, but in all jobs. Um, but the question is, how do you actually get people to to do it? Uh, and and we'll see what his, you know, the, what the small print on this is. Uh, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Mammy? When when teachers are going on strike because they haven't got enough money and they haven't got enough staff, and uh, there is a slight issue with this. It's the sort of last refuge of somebody trying to come up with an idea to, to put something new on the curriculum. Um, we, we quite often talk about when we do Think Tank Thursdays, it's sort of, there's two options for someone cooking up a policy. Put it on the national curriculum or ban it. And um, <laughs> depending on which which two things you're trying to do. And uh, unless there's going to be sort of massive investment or a complete, you know, ultimately the curriculum's already pretty jam-packed. Uh, yeah. um, and how do you measure it? Do we now we have need... to do sort of public speaking tests? <laughs> I mean, it would need investment because you can't just sort of repurpose English teachers, for example, to suddenly teach you the art of public speaking or, or, you know, if you certainly if you wanted to be done effectively, um, you know, you would need teachers to be trained to be able to to pass on the right skills and you'd need to come up with a system. And, and you know, Matthew's right sort of debating is is a, a very good way in. But, you know, they're, they're trying to make it sort of such a core part of the curriculum from a very young age. And that's an entire generation of teachers, you know, going from probably the age of sort of five onwards who would have to be retrained to be able to, to to incorporate it? And you're right. You know, there's no mention of where the money comes for, yeah. for all of that, or how you take, uh, you know, in already quite, you know, uh, teachers who already have an awful lot of stress on their plates. How you make it easier for them to be able to uh, incorporate a whole new, a whole new part of the, the curriculum without disrupting everything else. Interestingly, Helen's just been in touch saying, just tuning in, where have you been, Helen? Uh, and I'm really surprised to hear oracy has been badged as a new word. It's been the old literacy strategy for primary and in the curriculum. It doesn't require additional money. Confidence in public speaking comes through private schools being told how great they are. Um, That's, yeah. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, and, 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 it's, and, she, and Helen's absolutely right. It's, of course, it's not a new thing. It's one of the oldest things, as Mandy was saying, it goes back to the Greeks. But... Um, it's one of those things that's been long forgotten and it's perhaps not very, it's not sexy. It's not like reading and writing, which rolls off the tongue. We know what that means. But it's oracy, everyone's scratching their head. Um, but uh, of course, it needs to be in addition, let's not forget, into all these other things. It needs. To, we don't need to, uh, it doesn't replace, you know, the investment in reading and writing. And of course, let's not forget science and maths. It needs to be in addition. Uh, but it's great that, that he's brought it up at all. I think, you know, this is, as I was saying, this is the first interesting thing he said. No one can argue against it. Of course, we all need to speak properly uh, in life. And it's not just in jobs. It's in how we interact um, with our friends and socially and even online. You know, maybe if people uh, were able to marshal their thoughts a bit better, we wouldn't end up with the sort of 
threads we'll be now be having uh, where, where, where people fire off a thread, um, all, all 10 of them who are on threads now, um, <laughs> before they've actually thought it through. And so what, what we want is to slightly think as well before they speak. Yeah. Well, Lisa's been a so I've got to disagree with uh, M. Bell. I'm still waiting for the toolmaker's son to tell us something interesting. Another speech, another yawn enlivened by that interruption. Kissel must be absolutely livid that his big uh, education speech has been interrupted by some climate protesters pointing out that his last big speech uh, involved a U-turn. Um, but, you know, maybe obviously, maybe obviously will, will last a bit longer. There's lots lots of other things he's pledging in there as well. Uh, six and a half thousand new teachers in key subjects. Uh, £2,400 bonus after two years for, for new teachers who stay uh, in the job. Uh, so, um, yeah, there's lots more to it, but clearly the thing he wants to... to do is talk about smashing the class ceiling with obviously uh, a word that i've used so much today that's lost all shape and meaning uh i want to, let's move on and talk about a much more important issue uh the culture war that is hanging baskets uh we had a bit of debate on the show about this yesterday salisbury city council has voted to remove their hanging baskets and replace them with less water intensive alternatives like living pillars the lead of the Conservative group at Salisbury, Salisbury City Council, Eleanor Wills, wants to keep them, and the Liberal Democrat councillor, Victoria Charleston, wants to do away with them. Ideologically, they want to impose on Salisbury residents things that don't need to be done. Um, they're wasting taxpayers' money, and they're wasting officer time talking about whether or not to keep hanging baskets, and when actually there are a lot more pressing issues related to the environment that we could have been discussing that evening. It's ludicrous. Go on then, Victoria, make the case. Why do the hanging baskets have to go? I think um, Councillor Wills... <laughs> makes an incredibly historical point we do need to change we know that the climate is changing we know that our hanging baskets are incredibly water intensive incredibly financially intensive what we're looking at is an exciting way forward which makes uh, salisbury or continues to make salisbury vibrant and a wonderful place to live so matthew where do you stand on the uh, the pressing issue of woke hanging baskets well i love the fact that hanging baskets even hanging baskets it can be politicised. I mean, but, but talk about fiddling while Rome burns. Yes, there's a climate <laughs> crisis. But I mean, you know, worrying about whether we have pansies or moss in our public streets is ridiculous. What they should be doing is not wasting their time with bedding plants, which, by the way, I think we can all agree that hanging baskets are, are hideous on, on the whole. Um, <laughs> there's gaudy, bright yellow and pink pansies and other ghastly bedding flowers that last for a couple of months and then die. You know, what they should be doing is scrapping all these plant uh, water-intensive and labour-intensive planting schemes and bringing back trees because that's what is going to solve the climate crisis is planting trees. But what do do councils do across the country? They chop down trees. I mean, St Albans is the latest one, Plymouth, Sheffield, so so many scandals going on about councils chopping down trees. And actually what you want is trees uh, everywhere because they produce... Uh, well, they, they do what we do. You know, they, they, they are the ones that are going to help us um, solve the climate crisis. So, yeah, by all means, scrap uh, hanging baskets, but, but don't replace them with something, which I, I think, if I'm right in thinking, pillars still need watering. Is that right? I think they do, but I think they need less water. And they, they, they've got solar, something to do with solar panels on them as well. But I think the issue yeah, is right. that when you're watering uh, hanging baskets, you have to do them every day. And most of the water runs straight through and ends up on the floor. So, you, so you're basically wasting a lot of water. <laughs> Um, Manveen, in the interest of stoking this culture war, are you going to come out in favour of hanging baskets? In favour of hanging baskets? Um, No, no, I fear I'm not. They just look a bit twee, don't they? I mean, I know you you might want that for a historical town centre, but I just, I don't think they particularly add anything. I think Matthew's right. I think trees were a much better alternative. Um, And I I just can't quite believe 
hanging baskets are, are now being thought of as ideological. We're still joined by uh, Manvi Rana and Matthew Bell, and we can now uh, hear from uh, Tommy Shepherd, the SNP MP, who, uh, uh, Tommy, you have got the bishops in the House of Lords in your sights. Why do you want to get rid of the bishops? Well, I want people to start thinking about whether uh, having 26 bishops in the House of Lords automatically as of right is uh, a healthy thing to do in a modern democracy or whether uh, we should uh, it's time to move on from such a, a feudal arrangement really um, so no, I, I don't anticipate we're going to be making changes anytime soon, to be honest. But this is a start of a conversation today. Uh, and there is cross-party support, I think, for the proposal to try and uh, make sure that the, the House of Lords, although it is quite an anachronistic institution by itself, but even if it's to be an appointed uh, chamber, that it should be a little bit more representative of a society which is now a non-religious society in the majority, and we're only... 12% of people uh, say uh, identify as uh, supporting the Anglican Church and less than 1% of the population, according to the church's own figures, are regular practitioners. So, you know, there's, I think the case is sort of unanswerable. I mean, I'll be interested to see today whether anybody defends the, the status quo and whether it's right to continue to have bishops in the House of Lords as of right. But I, I don't think anyone will. I think probably at best they'll say, oh, this is a sort of nice traditional thing that we, we yeah. probably ought not tamper with well i wonder whether some people who, who favor it might might uh support keeping the bishops because they agree with them not least on things like the uh, uh illegal migration bill last night the government suffering a record 20th defeat uh, at the hands of the house of lords and one of the amendments passed was tabled by let's take a listen to him, the archbishop of canterbury justin welby we need a calmer and properly structured look at the whole areas of migration we also need a long-term vision and strategy that reaches beyond short-term electoral uh, cycles and allows this issue to be taken out of an entirely political agenda. Uh, Matthew, what do you think? Should we keep bishops in the House of Lords? Well, I think bishops are the least of the House of Lords' problems. I mean, there are 26 <laughs> bishops out of, out of 777 sitting peers. Um, you know, among them, Lord Lebedev of Moscow, who the Sunday Times has reported on extensively. I mean, what's he doing there? He's the son of a KGB agent. There are, there are much bigger issues at stake. And, and of course, the, the resignation honest list, which are, are completely uh, ridiculous and outrageous. Whereas to have 26 bishops who are people at the top of their game, who are senior, considerate people who... Um, are not politically involved is, is I think, would, is it would be, be a shame to lose them. But yes, do we need to have a conversation about changing the structure of the House of Lords? Of course we do. And in fact, this has been, you know, this was debated in the 19th century extensively about the connection between the church and the state. And there's been uh, every so, uh, in 1916, 1935, I think, 1970, they went through a whole process of looking at whether there should be bishops in the House of Lords. And every time they concluded that in fact, it is beneficial because um, as we're seeing with the immigration bill, they bring they bring a, a, a sort of an ethics or, or a, a Christian uh, look at some legislation, which uh, the Wouldn't immigration bill, for example, yeah. yes, it's completely unethical and unchristian thing to do to send people to Rwanda. So, of course, it's good that there are bishops blocking that. Uh, but, what do you but, but think? What, what should... do you think, Manvin? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Matthew. I think if you were to try and fix the House of Lords, this probably isn't the place you'd start. Um, you know, we've had so many scandals recently with, um, you know, people who even the Appointments Commission have, have objected to being 
then a noble. So, you know, I think you'd start somewhere completely different. Also, it's far too big. It's too bloated. Um, it's second only to the Chinese state um, oh, yeah, 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 assembly yeah. in terms of its size for a country our size it just makes no sense at all um and i you know i, th- I think you're right i think a lot of people will have find difficulty in sort of looking at it constitutionally versus you know the things they quite like about what the bishops are doing but then i i, I think in a way that probably highlights the value of having them there which is that they do yeah. bring conscience to policy Whereas everybody else is looking at, you know, I mean, a lot. you've got a lot of people who are aligned to political parties and then the crossbenchers will bring their level of expertise. I quite like the idea that somebody is bringing conscience to uh, to the debate. And they, they've certainly done that quite well with, you know, the, the immigration stuff recently. To- I don't know if anybody else would have would have led the charge on that in the way that they have. And if ultimately, you know, the government might still get his way, but it's, it's good for them to be tested. Uh, just finally, Tommy, Basil in Hereford says, the SNP represents a tiny fraction of the UK population. They can't, therefore, <laughs> complain about bishops in the House of Lords. Your response right. to that in t- twenty seconds. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just to be clear, I'm I'm moving this debate today not as uh, not on behalf of the SNP, but on behalf of the the All Party Humanist Group in Parliament, uh, which actually provides representation for the majority opinion in the UK today, oh, which is people who are, people who are not religious and don't identify as such. Look, no one is saying that uh, we don't think people of faith have a role in public life and a role in politics. Yeah. Of course, they do, and I fully accept that. Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell there. And of course, you can catch Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast. One story told in depth every day, wherever you get your podcasts from. Up next, it's our by-election countdown. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Selby and Ainsley and Somerton and Froome. Three by-elections. You were ages of one and then three come along at once. Three big opportunities for Rishi Sunak and his leadership uh, to face more serious blows. They take place two weeks today. So we thought we'd take a look at the constituencies, the candidates, the key policies shaping the debate and we'll assess uh, the possible impact on Rishi Sunak's premiership uh, if he loses them all. So, uh, we are going on the ground in each location, location, location. Uh, we kick off with Uxbridge and South Ryslip and a very special guest presenter, Boris Johnson. It's fantastic to be here in Ryslip Manor where I've been talking to people here at the Wealdstone Football Club, an amazing local club, doing better and better, but what they need is the security of a long lease. I've been to the Middlesex Arms to talk to staff and customers about the challenges that they're facing. Anyway, it's fantastic to be out and about uh, here in Ryslip Manor and across the borough in, in Hilly. So, uh, thank you uh, for that, uh, Boris Johnson. So, let's take a look at the constituency in depth with Times political reporter Geraldine Scott, who has been there for us. Hi, Joey. Hi, Matt. Uh, Let's start, first of all, why is there a by-election in Uxbridge? Well, look, I mean, this is all about Boris Johnson throwing his toys out of the pram and resigning, isn't it, before that uh, Privileges Committee report even came out that we all... Uh, read about in the Times beforehand because uh, because some people on the team are very, very good um, and got hold of it. Um, and he basically said, you know, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm resigning. It's a kangaroo court. Goodbye. Um, and that is essentially what has kicked off a lot of uh, these by-elections that we're talking about today. But 
of course, this is this is a big one for the Tories. Then the, the impact of Boris Johnson as a person, as a personality, is going to be kind of pretty crucial here. And um, that's what I found when I went and had a chat with some people locally a couple of weeks ago. And the uh, give us the, the the numbers in terms of the uh, the twenty nineteen election. He didn't have a massive majority, and there had been some speculation uh, that he was going to be in trouble if he stood there again. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what counts as a massive um, majority these days is is kind of completely different to what it used to be. What's really interesting is in that last election, um, Labour actually came um, closer than they ever have to kind of unseating um, a sitting prime minister. But it, it, it's up in the twenty thousands. But like I say, that's not that's that, that's right. It used to be up in the twenty thousands, but now we're down in the kind of seven thousand, and it's very interesting because. You know, that's not a massive swing. If we look at some of those by-elections that we've had more recently, where the Lib Dems have been successful, for example, those have been massive majority swings of 20,000. Obviously, it's Labour facing here, which is a little bit different, but it's really not a massive kind of thing to overturn. And that's what Labour will be hoping for. But, you know, I mentioned that popularity of Boris Johnson there as well. When I was out speaking to people doing the dreaded Vox Pops on the streets in Uxbridge, um, they really wanted to talk about Boris Johnson. They were very complimentary about him. A lot of them remembered him kind of turning up at the pub and buying a round of drinks or turning up at their children's school fate. So, you know, the, the, the Tories should be worried, I think, not just because um, of the kind of dissatisfaction of the current government, but for that seemingly still lingering affection for Boris Johnson too. So what did you find uh, when you were there? What are the issues that people are talking about? Who are the candidates we should be watching? Yeah, it was a bit um, it was a bit like that Disney movie song. Um, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, but it was we don't talk about Boris. All the, <laughs> um, all the candidates, Danny Beals, Labour's candidate, the Tories, had only just chosen their their candidate at that point um but they didn't want to talk about boris really playing him down um tories telling me you know we don't really know what the boris factor is going to be danny beale saying he's not coming up on the doorstep but every voter i spoke to on the street really wants to speak about him and you know you can see why he's a big character he leans large over the constituency and that's going to continue but then in terms of issues like everywhere you've got the cost of living um, housing, but the big one for Uxbridge is ULES, that uh, ultra low emissions um, zone charge, which is planned to be extended out to the constituency. Um, what was very, very interesting in the last few days is when I spoke to Danny Beals, like I said, this is a few days ago now, he was still pretty supportive of the ULES being expanded. He said the scrappage scheme needs to be improved, but just in the last few days, he has now said that that should be paused presumably because he realised how badly it was going down on the doorstep. He told me, no, 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 no one's bringing it up with me. But the first people I spoke to, a couple, a mother, local mother called uh, Leslie said to me, well, it's the ULEZ, it's going to absolutely kill us. So it clearly was an issue. It clearly is an issue. In fact, Keir Starmer was asked about the ULEZ, the ultra low emission zone, uh, when he was on Times Early Breakfast this morning. I, I do understand those concerns. Um, I really do. And, and Danny Bills, who's the Labour candidate, um, in Uxbridge has been clear on his position in terms of um, calling for a review and, and sticking up for what he hopes will be his constituents. 
Um, I suppose it, it, it's one of these issues, I have to say, not living in London and not being affected by it, I sort of slightly glaze over when anyone mentions you, Les, but this is massive down in Uxbridge, isn't it? Yeah, it is massive. And look, you can see why. I, I do live in London, but I don't drive. So I haven't quite grasped <laughs> quite, uh, quite exactly uh, how serious this was for people. But people are facing, you know, if their cars or vans aren't compliant with with this uh, new kind of specification, a £12.50 a day charge, it's a lot of money. Um, it's pretty serious. And it was also an issue for the local elections. I went out to Isha, Dominic Rudd's constituency in Surrey, and they're, they're looking at it there as well, not quite to be expanded to their area, but you have a lot of tradesmen that may come into the area. Um, so they're facing that as well. It is really massive for people. They feel like it's being imposed on them um, and the Tories have clearly seen that as a massive kind of wedge issue in the constituency. It's basically all they've been going on about in Uxbridge. That and the building of the new hospital have been the two big issues. Um, so it remains to be seen whether Danny Beale's now coming out and saying it should be paused. will um, I don't know, gain some traction for him. We're only two weeks out from that vote. Is there enough time? I don't know. And how much will it play against him that Obviously, Sadiq Khan, the London mayor who's pushing it forward, is a Labour mayor. It, it remains to be seen, but it does feel like, you know, he's read the ruins of it and seen that his position probably wasn't tenable. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting that. Uh, uh, Joey, thanks very much. Joey Scott, who's been to Uxbridge and South Wyslip, where last time around, Boris Johnson got 25,000 votes, uh, just over 7,000 more. Uh, than Labour on 18,000, Lib Dems on 3,000. There's quite a lot of candidates last time around, because obviously Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. Uh, there's even more uh, this time around. In fact, this is the full list of who is standing in Uxbridge and South Wyslip. Blaise Bakwish, Liberal Democrat, Danny Beals, Labour, Cameron Bell, Independent, Count Binface, Count Binface Party, Piers Corbyn, Let London Live, Lawrence Fox, Reclaim Party, Steve Gardner, Social Democratic Party, Ed Gemmell, Climate Party, Sarah Green, Green Party, Kingsley Hamilton, Independent, Richard Hewison, Rejoin EU, Alan Howling Lord Hope, Official Monster Raving Looney Party, 77 Joseph, Independent, Rebecca Jane, UKIP, Inom- Fon and Tefon Christian People's Alliance, Leo Four, Independent, Steve Tuckwell, Conservative Party. Two weeks today, Rishi Sunak faces three big electoral tests uh, by elections in Tory held seats. Uh, will he be able to hold on to any of them? Uh, we've just been discussing Uxbridge and South Ryslip, where Boris Johnson is standing down. Uh, and Labour very much got their eye on that. Let's go to Selby in Ainsey now, uh, where the outgoing MP Nigel Adams uh, takes us on location, location, location. It's a largely rural seat with over 100 villages and hamlets. Selby is indeed the largest settlement within the constituency. It's a market town. We have significant historical connections with America, and these can be found in the 14th century Washington window of Selby Abbey, which bears the Washington family arms and is believed to be used as the basis for the American flag. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, that's Nigel Adams. He's the one who's standing down and triggering this by-election. Well, Tom Ball is the Times' northern correspondent who's been to the constituency. Uh, Tom, remind us, first of all, why this by-election has been triggered. Um, morning, Matt. Um, well, um, 
Adams, uh, who was a, a, a kind of ultra Johnson loyalist, had been expected to receive a peerage um, in the form of Prime Minister's resignation honours, um, but failed to appear on that list. And uh, the day after decided, uh, along with Nadine Doris, who's also tipped to be uh, on that resignation's uh, honours list, um, that he was going to resign. And uh, without even getting his peerage. So take us through the seat. Uh, what, how safe a Tory seat is it in theory? And what did you find when you went there? It's as safe as it comes, really. Um, Adams, who's been um, MP for the seat since its creation in 2010, uh, has a majority of 20,000, uh, or just over 20,000. Um, were Labour to win it, it would be a hell of a swing. Uh, and it would be, I think it would be their biggest um, ever overturning of the majority. Uh, I think I think the last time they got anywhere near to that was in 1990 with Mid-Staffordshire, which is about 15,000 majority that they overturned. So um, uh, it would be colossus. Um, uh, but uh, people pretty pretty angry uh, on the streets um, from what I find found. Um uh, they didn't like the way that Adam stood down. Um, even Tory activists and um, Tory councillors were saying how disappointed they were. Uh, I spoke to several um, long-standing, lifelong Tory voters who said that um, they would not be giving their votes to um, the Tory candidate, Claire Holmes. Um, uh, some said that they'd vote for Labour. Others said they'd vote for independence. But I think largely um, there's a real sense of... Um, uh, disillusionment um, verging on fury um, among Tories in this very Tory um, part of the country. And what particular is it? Just uh, are there particular local issues we were talking about the ULES in uh, in Uxbridge? Are there particular local issues that people want to sort of uh, sound off about, or is it is it more to do with that national picture again? The manner in which Nigel Adams has resigned, the fact that. Um, uh, Rishi Sunak is currently over, you know, at the top of a not particularly popular government. I think that there are a few um, uh, there are a few issues that are, are pertinent to Selby. Um, it's a former shipbuilding town, but in recent years, it's become uh, a commuter belt for, for cities like York and Leeds. Um, so younger people, um, as is the case across the country, but is particularly the case in in towns like Selby, uh, just can't get on the property ladder. Um, and uh, I spoke to several young people when I was there who just said that you know they were finding it impossible to to stay in the town that they they grew up in, um, having to move much further afield. Um, so that's an issue. And the Labour Party has been has been targeting that, and they've they've got together various statistics. Um, on this, um, which which Rachel, Rachel Reeves was um, um, talking about when she came to visit the constituency a couple of weeks ago, um, and in fact, yeah, I, like I think said- Keir Starmer raised it, didn't he? In the in the obviously because party leaders like to uh, make specific by election um, party political points, join things like PMQs. Uh, this was uh, Keir Starmer in the House of Commons raising an issue of a of I think it was a police officer who couldn't buy a house. Just take a listen to this. This morning, I spoke to James in Selby. He's a police officer, working hard to keep people safe every day. He told me this morning, they may not want to hear this, he told me this morning that they've decided to sell their house, to downsize, and he's just told his children they're going to have to start sharing bedrooms. 
Mr. Mr. Speaker, I hope when the Honourable Gentleman was talking to James, he explained that his economic policies would make James's situation worse, Mr. Speaker. So, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a brilliant exchange, that, uh, Todd, but I suppose it just goes to show that, you know, if Keir Starmer's putting up a bit of lights at PMQs, then, uh, then he's tapping into something which, like you said, you picked up when you were on the doorstep. Yeah, precisely. And uh, I think it's telling that the Labour Party has put forward as their candidate um, uh, somebody who's who's 25 would be the youngest um, MP were he to be elected, called Keir Mather. Uh And I think that they are really trying to tap into that that kind of youth vote to a certain extent um, and um, uh, try and enhance some of that, um, harness some of that. Um, um, feeling that younger people who don't own their own home or who are struggling to 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 buy and even to rent are are feeling at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll see uh, how that. I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a majority to try and overturn uh, twenty odd thousand. But um, it does. I suppose it depends how how deep those um, feelings run. Uh, Tom, really good to speak to you. Uh, Tom Ball, who has been to Selby and Ainsley for uh, to speak to voters in that by election. Uh, before we move on to our next location, 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 here is the list of who else is standing in Selby and Ainsley. Andrew Gray, Independent. Claire Holmes, Conservative Party. Mike Jordan, Yorkshire Party. Dave Kent, Reform UK. Keir Mather, Labour Party. Nick Palmer, Independent. Guy Phoenix, Heritage Party. Sir Archibald Stanton, the official monster-raving loony party. Matt Walker, Liberal Democrats. Arnold Warnocken, Green Party. John Waterson, Social Democratic Party. Luke Wellock, Climate Party. Tyler Wilson-Kerr, Independent. And that's your full list of uh, candidates uh, standing in Selby. Right, for the final one, we're off to Somerton in Froome. We'll speak to Will Humphreys, the uh, southwest, the West Country Coast one of the Times in a moment. First, our guide on the location, location, location of Somerton and Froome is the outgoing MP, David Warburton. It starts with the suburbial villages of, Bar- of outside Bath, goes down past exciting Froome and the Mendip Hills, through burgeoning Bruton, racing Wincanton, ancient Somerton, blossoming uh, Langport, and, um, and on to the Somerset levels and red brick Martok, and of course, the village of Muchelney. Yeah, very much my part of the world is. I think it's the constituency where I uh, I went to school. Well, uh, Will Humphreys uh, is the Times of South West correspondent uh, and can guide us through it. Uh, first of all, Will, why is David Warburton standing down? He is standing down because uh, last year the Sunday Times revealed that there were allegations of unwanted sexual comments and touching, drug abuse and financial misconduct against him. Um, all things he denied initially and then has since admitted taking cocaine um but he still denies harassing female political aid um he has been suspended by the conservative party for the past year but only recently resigned his post so uh, locals feel that you know they have been without really a, a proper mp for the last year and the lib dems have been and been making hay with that fact and uh, and it's an inter- that's why this one this this seat is also interesting because it's a different sort of seat. It's not a London seat like Uxbridge. It's not an, a northern seat with a big Tory majority like Selby. It's this is a, li- a Tory Lib Dem marginal, isn't it? It is. I mean, David Warburton actually had a nineteen thousand majority at the last election. Yeah, it's so not a very marginal marginal. 
<laughs> but the Lib Dems did hold it between 97 and, and 2010. So they, there is a Lib Dem history here. And also the Conservatives will know in the back of their minds that the, the Tiverton Honiton by-election uh, a year or so ago, um, the Lib Dems overturned a 24,000 majority there. So this isn't out of the realms of possibility. And, and the bookmakers are almost universally backing the Lib Dems to, to take this seat. Yeah, um, so the the candidate there, the Lib Dem candidate, is uh, called Sarah Dyke. Uh, there's been some suggestion she's already acting as the MP there already, partly because David Warburton's not really been um, been around. No, so I mean he is he's very much been absent, uh, according to locals. Um, and the Lib Dems chose Sarah Dyke as their their candidate last year and set up an office for her, and she has been campaigning for the past year. So they are really they've been taking this seriously for a long time um and she is she's from a local farming family she's a councillor in the area uh the lib dems are sort of pushing the 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 failure of the tories to sort of help farmers post brexit um but it's not all been plain sailing for her she she had a car crash interview with um the guardian uh a couple weeks ago pretty soft soap question asked of her about you know, what did she make of deprivation in the area? Given fact, we, that, we, know, have got, we have got the clip so we can enjoy it in all of its awfulness. Let's take a listen. What do you want to know? Something is a subject that I don't know anything about. <laughs> about, about not, we're gonna, not going to be able to give you an answer for very sensibly. Or do, or what, on, on, the, on the sort of general economic state of the constituency? Um, well, I can talk... I don't feel I don't feel that I'm prepared at all for for this, Amy. It's all getting a little bit um, above, right. above my station, sorry. It's quite hard if you're the candidate to become the MP and being asked about your possible constituency is all a bit above your station. It is a bit, isn't it? Um, I mean, if the Lib Dems do take it despite that, it will show you just how angry people are at the Tory party at the moment because, I mean, that's not great campaigning, is it? But, um, <laughs> you know, if she does still sweep to victory, then the Tories are in trouble, I think. And that could be replicated right across, basically, across your patch, couldn't it? Like you said, we saw Tiverton and Honiton in Devon. Uh, if this um, Somerton and Froome turns yellow, there are lots of other Tory MPs in Somerset who will be very worried, having thought they were sitting on pretty decent majorities. Yeah, I mean, lots of the South West, historically, was very Lib Dem friendly, and then the Conservatives sort of rolled them over, um, over the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, and there was a huge swipe of blue across the southwest. But if the sort of mu- mood music of the last couple of years of by-elections are to go by, it looks like the Lib Dems are very much sort of coming back to power in the southwest. And I mean, if this one goes as well, um, I think it could be very shaky ground for the general election for the, for the Conservatives in the southwest. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, that is Will Humphrey, Southwest West Cross 1 uh, for The Times, uh, taking us through the picture in Somerton and Froome. So before we end it there, a quick list of everyone who's standing in the by-election there. Lorna Cork, Christian People's Alliance. Martin Dimery, Green. Sarah Dyke, Liberal Democrat. Bruce Evans, Reform UK. Neil Guild, Labour. Rosie Mitchell, Independent. Faye Purbrick, Conservative. Peter Richardson, UK Independence Party. And that's the full list of people standing there. Well, no sooner have we got three by-elections uh, taking place in a fortnight today. Today, we found out there could be another one. Uh, it follows the suspension or the recommendation of the suspension of uh, the Conservative MP Chris Pincher over groping allegations, which actually emerged over a year ago. Uh, Henry Zeffman, the Times Associate Political Editor, tells me why it could, in theory, lead to not one but two more by-elections. 
the length of the suspension means that a by-election in his Tamworth constituency is almost inevitable. Uh, and that means another headache for Rishi Sunak. And explain why this could trigger not one but two by-elections. Well, I mean, I think there's a real failure of seeing round the corner from the Conservative headquarters here because uh, it has been clear for months, you know, people have said it to me and you know, it, it kind of, when you think about it, it's kind of obvious that as long as this investigation into Chris Pincher concluded before the election, uh, he was going to get a suspension like this and a by-election was going to happen. Um, nevertheless, the Conservatives allowed a sitting MP, Eddie Hughes, current MP for Walsall North, former minister, to go for the Tamworth selection, which he won. So the, the constituency of Tamworth has already chosen Eddie Hughes to be their candidate at the next general election. Now, of course, if he were to be the by-election candidate, he would have to resign as the MP for Walsall North, a seat which is being basically dissolved at the general election under the boundary review anyway in order to contest that by-election. And then that will mean a second by-election. My understanding is that's not going to happen. The Conservatives are going to choose a new candidate for the by-election, if there is a by-election. And uh, I I think that's a hard sell. I said to someone in the Conservative Party, isn't it a bit hard to say to the voters of Tamworth, here is our candidate for the next 10 to 12 to 14 months, but after that we've got an even better person who we're going to (laughs) choose. And they replied saying, yes, but a lot of things are quite hard for us to argue at the moment. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, I mean, it is clearly, it is clearly a, an awkward situation which Conservative head office probably should have seen coming. Henry Zeffman, the Times Associate Pierce explaining that uh, Chris Pincher and the recommendation he be suspended for eight weeks uh, from the House of Commons. The process means that there could then be a uh, recall petition triggering another by-election. And as he was explaining there, uh, potentially leading to another by-election, depending on who they then allow to stand in it. All very complicated stuff. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Catch me live weekdays from 10 on your actual Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.